Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Double X Book Club for Thursday, October 7th. This is Hannah Rosen, the co-editor of Double X. I'm here with my fellow co-editor, Emily Bazelon, who's Hello, in D.C. Then. with us. Hi. And Margaret Talbot of The New Yorker, who's here with us, too. Hi there. Hello. Um, today we are going to talk about Jonathan Franzen's Freedom, which is, I would say, the closest we'd have to a literary event mm-hmm. <laughs> in a very long time. It's, it's stirred up all sorts of controversy and, you know, praise and anti-praise and lots and lots of debates. And we won't talk entirely about the debates, although we'll get into them a little bit. Uh, but let's just start by talking about the book itself. The book itself opens uh, with a couple, Patty and Walter Berglund, and it's essentially a story of their family and their intimate connections and what happens to them over a number of years, told by Patty herself in her own voice and then the voice of uh, of the narrator. It opens with them having her moving into a neighborhood and gentrifying this neighborhood, essentially, and there's basically a portrait of a certain kind of mother in that opening chapter. And I was very curious from the two of you whether you found that portrait of her believable. She's essentially plays this kind of hapless neighborhood. Uh, she's like the neighborhood a neighborhood connector, kind right. of. You know, okay, she, can I read a passage? Yes, you because can read I a think it will give a yes. flavor. Um, it's, a, it's a long paragraph, but bear with me because I think it's, it's worth it. Okay. For all queries, Patty Berglund was a resource, a sunny carrier of sociocultural pollen, an affable bee. Yes, that's a good one. <laughs> she was one of the few stay-at-home moms in Ramsey Hill and was famously averse to speaking well of herself or ill of anybody else. She said she expected to be beheaded someday by one of the windows whose sash chains she'd replaced. Her children were probably dying of trichinosis from pork she'd undercooked. She wondered if her addiction to paint stripper fumes might be related to her never reading books anymore. She confided that she'd been forbidden to fertilize Walter's flowers after what had happened last time. There were people with whom her style of self-deprecation didn't sit well, who detected a kind of condescension in it, as if Patty, in exaggerating her own minor defects, were too obviously trying to spare the feelings of less accomplished homemakers. Um, and it goes on to say that uh, most people found her humility sincere or at least amusing. Um, and I won't read the rest of the paragraph, but that gives you a flavor of the voice that is describing Patty and introducing us to Patty. And okay, so let's dissect that section. voice. Because <laughs> yeah, yes. you can look at that and you can say one's initial reaction could be, oh, this is a very stereotypical portrait of a mother of a certain kind of yuppie class because this is in the 80s, right? Right, right. So she's worried about, you know, possible toxic uh, chemicals or lead in the fiesta wear and right. she's 
cooking from the silver pellet cookbook, and she's you know driving buying, a Volvo, driving a Volvo, exactly and, right, and 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 you know rehabbing this Victorian house in a uh, rundown neighborhood, and um, and then turning on the actual working class who <laughs> who live there, right? Low rent neighbors. Well, right. I have to say the I found the voice extremely believable, like as a as a person who is essentially sort of puts out a public persona, which is not actually quite fully realized. I mean, one of the most poignant things to me was that she was this social connector in the neighborhood. There, there's a great moment in which the neighbors, particularly the husband of one of the neighbors, his, he, he's an extremely minor character, but is kind of fascinated with her in a way that his wife finds annoying. You know, they he's come always, back at the end. Did you catch yes, that? Yes, yes, I was yes. really welcome. Well, the end and the beginning are sort of bookends to yes, each other, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but she's, she's not quite fully realized. She puts out these things which are self-deprecating, but kind of not really. Like, she's clearly... You know, putting out a she's a deflecting of herself. Yeah. praise that she is someone who actually cares about these things and does them well. But the only way to not then seem like you're showing off is to deflect the attention that you get from them. Well, the right. poignant part for me too is is which completed the portrait for me is that she is this connector, but doesn't actually have any friends. That's what felt very real to me. This is a person who I recognize. You, I know these people not from neighborhoods. We don't really have neighborhoods so much anymore, but from but the school, school communities, right. exactly yeah, from right, school yes. communities which is, you know, the mother who's always out there saying, oh, my God, these cookies that I baked yesterday came out so terribly and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, yesterday when we did the craft project, you know, you know these people and they know everybody and they're always cheerful and happy and you are slightly suspicious of them and don't quite know what to and make of them. And they have all the information about the best teachers exactly. and whose, whose class you should avoid. The best yard sales. Yeah. But you realize at some point that they'd not, this is all a substitute for actual connection. And I think that's kind of becomes important in the book that there's this sort of structure and framework of connection, but it's not, she's not actually connected she's to She's actually quite a lonely person, and in the book, that plays out in her kind of overwrought relationship with her son, which becomes a source of tremendous grief and sorrow for her when her son finally decides that he can't stand any longer being her designated understander, right. as he calls it. It's just, you know, her her lack of closeness to other women, I think, or other adults, other than her husband and her flame, means that she's confiding in him in this TMI way. Right. right. Let's talk a little bit actually about the voice though of this opening passage, mm-hmm. uh, opening section, because it actually is meant to be, I think, a different voice, although it bears a lot in common with um, the, her voice. The, with her voice and, the and then, and then we'll friends voice or the narrator's voice. Okay. Well, so this, this first passage um, is written, you know, originally I read it as though it were written by the sort of collective voice of the neighbors, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so this is kind of the Take on Patty as a as a public person and as a person in this community, and it's um, you know it's it's a little it's gossipy, it's a little it's snarky, it's kind of mean, but all but also full of pretty acute observations. Judith Shulovitz, in her review for Slate, pointed out that she thought it was sort of the voice, a, a bigger collective voice, kind of the Greek chorus of the commentariat or the blogosphere, mm-hmm. and that that kind of voice that sort of um, you know f- fairly superficial, fairly nasty. <laughs> times, right. but fairly um, knowing. knowing and and accurate in its um, kind of sociological detail and um, the little talismans that mark a person's social class and so on. Um, you sort of shudder to imagine being dissected exactly, by this voice, exactly. right? Anyone's life could be held up to this kind of microscope, and then what would emerge would be the caricature version of you. That's right. right. That's right. And I think then the idea is that then we step into the next voice, which is actually her, an autobiography that Patty has... Uh, um, ostensibly an autobiograph- autobiography that, uh, that Patty has written at the behest of her therapist. The therapist who never Patty appears. Who never appears. <laughs> That's true. Very shadowy um, therapist figure. But it does lead to this quite wonderful telling of the story in which Patty is essentially speaking to her husband, really. Mm-hmm. But you're, but I, I imagine that you're leading to this argument that the voices are not distinct enough and they cross too much and that Jonathan Franzen's voice I think and so. Patty's I voice are... I think Jonathan Franzen's voice and Patty's voice are, are way too similar and in fact not that dissimilar from the snarky collective voice. Right. Of the right. Passage. And I suppose one way in which he arguably saves that is that nobody speaks in the first person. I mean, the mm-hmm. se- the autobiographical sections are very close third person, as are, I think, the parts of the book told from Walter and Joey's points of view, because there are moments where the pers- and Richard Katz, mm-hmm. um, who is the affair. I really want to talk about Richard. But first, I want you to compl- you're saying this is a criticism. You think this is a failure in the novel? Yes, I do, actually. Um, I think the, the, the book is an incredibly uh, 
enjoyable and involving read. But I, you know, found myself irritated at times by this sort of Franzen-esque kind of cruel anatomizing of his characters, um, which feels a little to me like watching, you know, somebody pull the wings off a fly. I mean, he is, you know, incredibly accurate in his um, sort of you know, sociological observations of the way we live now. He's also, you know, pretty snarky at the expense Mm -hmm. of all of his characters. He, um, and we can talk a little bit about the ending. I think this is different from the corrections. I think he does allow them a moment of grace and mercy at the end, which is new to me in, in, Mm -hmm. in comparison to the corrections and which I really appreciated and was moved by. You know, I think that scene setting, even though we're meant to be then pulled back into a more internal reality of the characters, I felt like that voice never really left my head, the voice of the opening um, section. Now, interestingly, maybe this is because I'm a meaner person. I sort of felt like I did <laughs> feel that way about the corrections. <laughs> I felt that way about the corrections. I felt that in the corrections, there was a kind of critical distance, which was a little bit uncomfortable. Whereas I felt in this book, there was a dissection, but there was not a lack of generosity. And, and, and that expressed itself in two ways for me. One, I felt like he gave the characters a lot of time with their struggles with themselves. There were so many different ways in which Patty was, you know, kind of searching and failing to find herself. I mean, this gets into the theme of freedom, which we'll talk about later. So many ways in which people tried so hard to connect with other people. So many ways in which, you know, Patty struggled with her relationship with her mother, her her star as a basketball player, kind of who she was, that that in and of itself is a form of empathy, kind of seeing things from Patty's point of view, allowing her kind of crises in a ve- to unfold in a very slow way. I-, I thought he was extremely generous with Patty. And I thought that this opening voice was a kind of literary attempt. Like, I, I actually saw it as intentional, this idea of melding intentional and appropriate for the internet age in which the voice of your own self-expression is extremely similar to the voice of the kind of people critical of you is extreme. Like when these characters break down, like Walter at Mm -hmm. the end, he breaks down in this kind of universal crazy internet voice, which kind of matches the voice of the the people who are the real internet commentariat, which are these young activist, crazy kind of, you know, uh, enviro fascist type people. And they're all kind of the same voice. And it it reminds me of times, you know, like there was that recent video uh, of the Justin Bieber hater (laughs) girl, which we wrote about on Double X a little bit. And it was like, like, you saw this, like, 13-year-old girl speaking against the Justin Bieber hater girl, and you're thinking, like, where – this girl is – this is a pure act of self-expression, and yet her voice sounds like every real housewife, everybody you mm-hmm. ever see on the internet. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a way in which her personal expression so perfectly – in an age of sort of constant ubiquitous personal expression – they all sounded the same. So it felt to me like that was something intentional. And Whereas in the corrections, it felt cruel. Mm-hmm. And here it felt like he's saying something about the moment. And how well, we that's an interesting ourselves. point. So, and certainly, you know, sort of your your representations to the world, particularly through the Internet, you know, Internet rants play an important role in this um, because Richard also has one. Richard, the sort of um, alternative musician. <laughs> yeah. um, they're quite entertaining to yeah. read and in a grim sort of way. So, yeah, I mean, I, that's an interesting interesting point that that's that that in fact is the intended melding of voices uh, effect that he's going for. I kind of doubt that that's actually going on. Maybe we can we've gotten sort of (laughs) we've gotten heady really quickly. (laughs) Let's go go back to the plot. So so in the Patty by Patty section, one thing that comes up very early is uh, Patty's rape. Patty's having been raped. And this tells you a lot about Patty's relationship with her parents and kind of what happens to her in college and how she processes this is quite interesting. Do either of you remember it? closely enough to remember what happened. She's Well, it's a date rape yes. in high school yes. um, by a boy who is the son of a political colleague of the mother's who's a who's a politician, somebody who's donated to her campaigns, in fact. And um, the thing about Patty's family, and this is an interesting portrayal, I think, is that, you know, everyone in her family is kind of more intellectual, um, argumentative, theatrical. theatrical than she is. And um, she is actually 
the family jock, and the family doesn't know what to make of this. She's a high school basketball star. This is, um, you know, her her realm of accomplishment, and the mom so doesn't get this that she never even comes to her game. She goes to all the sisters, you know, dramatic performances. And, and this so does come back around in the book. It does come back around. So yes, I'm going to read. Yes. This might lead us to the same heady conversation, but I'm going to read you what happens to Patty uh, in the morning after the date rape. It was only after the pina coladas wore off. This is on page 36. Early the next morning in the bedroom, which being such an agreeable person, Patty shared with her little sister so that her middle sister could have her own room to be creative and messy in. Only then did she get indignant. The indignity was that Ethan had considered, Ethan as the date rape guy, had considered her such a nothing that he could just rape her and then take her home. And she was not such a nothing. She was, among other things, already as a junior, the all-time single season record holder for assists at Horace Greeley High School, a record she would again demolish the following year. She was also first-time All-State in a state that included Brooklyn and the Bronx, and yet a golfing boy she hardly knew had even thought it was okay to rape her. So to me, this is like a very successful example of the narrator's voice. You know, there's so much like petty detail in there, like the record holder for assists. It wasn't, you know, that's something that so clearly comes from her own head and sort of like a really childish grievance about her room, which is also a legitimate grievance because her mother has stocked the room with all kinds of campaign documents. And yet it's the voice of outrage and kind of a feminist moment. And, you know, the mother, you're going to say, is a great character. A storyteller. I mean, there's also a tremendous use of exclamation points and question marks in the dialogue with the way as she's telling the story and she speaks mm-hmm. yes and that is in fact how people talk you know hokey as it may be and i i yeah i was quite found her voice quite winning it's interesting that you picked out that quote because in the current atlantic review which is a complete uh screen against astonishing friends and anymore uh, yeah and and he singles out that same exact paragraph to say you know this is an adult woman writing this you know why is she filtering this right. traumatic memory through these you know petty considerations I actually agree with you on this I uh-huh. think she's channeling how she felt as a high school student and sort of grabbing at her little bits of dignity that mattered to her and you know being very specific about them because that's how you feel when you're doing that you know so I and I, I, I also think Patty's not fully realized like there's no there's almost no point except for this moment of grace at the end which is a typical you know novel trick which is or isn't convincing she never really understands herself that well one you know? of the things too I think is going on here is the blurring of lines between adults and children and this is something Franzen has been talking about in interviews that he's very interested, that he thinks that in our culture right now, that authoritative parenting, there's not enough of that. Um, and we see the problems with that in this book, in Patty's relationships with her kids, to as one the biggest example. But you're right, she doesn't seem fully adult in some way. And so the way in which she talks with these question marks at the ends of sentences reflects how her younger daughter talks, how another young female character in the book, um, who is uh, ends up being Patty's husband, Walter's Mistress, affair. Right. Um, she talks that way, too. And I, I think Franzen is making a deliberate statement here. And that Atlantic Review was all about how trivializing that is of sort of how can you make any grand statement about the human conditions when people are talking about how into other people they right, are as right, if like things. that was the verb of choice but I actually think A, we do speak in that vernacular you know far more of the time than we really want to admit and also there is something pretty profound here about the, the adults having trouble being kind of traditional parenting adults and I loved how Franzen went back into Patty and Walter's childhood so that you could really see and in fact, he goes back a couple of generations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with Walter, and you can it helps you understand who they are and why. And Walter I was actually my favorite character. Uh-huh. All right, well, let's move away from talking about realized. Patty, but I just want to say one last thing about Patty. It is true that you know the one genuine realization Patty has is that she's fit to be a grade school teacher. She's fit to be with little kids. She loves so children. She loves I was children. Envious of her. <laughs> Great. I was like, oh, this is so. And wonderful. she's no good with adults. So in, right, in a way, right. it sort of suits Patty to remain forever a child. And she that's like she really realizes that about herself, and she's terrible with her grown children, and she's great with little kids. Anyway, let's forget Patty for a moment. Let's put her aside and talk about her husband, Walter. Why did you like Walter? What did you think about Walter? I mean, for one thing, because Walter is really struggling to be a decent person in a more... I mean, I suppose you can argue that Patty is, too, but Patty is so kind of... Limited. Limited and depressed in a way that isn't... that is kind of um, befuddling at times, that, you know, his struggles to kind of do right in the world are a little bit easier to kind of get your head around, I think. Um, Anyway, he's an environmentalist. He is uh, somebody who, at the beginning of the book, in their kind of salad days in St. Paul, 
Paul is working for the Nature Conservancy, is known as the really nice guy in the neighborhood, um, is described, you know, I think is miraculously good by Patty. He's kind of, you know, the son himself of a, of a drunken father who preferred his kind of loudish brothers over him and um, grew up very devoted to his own mother, who the parents ran this kind of uh, run-down motel. motel um, uh, out in the Walter woods in Minnesota, to fix up all the time. Right, exactly. So Walter's this, you know, extremely responsible sort of devoted person who uh, has this friendship, though, that's a little surprising with this figure, Richard Katz, who ends up being a kind of originally punk and then kind of a you know alt indie musician with a with a kind of you know limited but devoted following. They sort of are in constant competition, kind of brother-like competition, and also, you know, are extremely into each other, <laughs> as Franzen would say. I don't think he says it about them. But they're connected to each other. Yes. I mean, they their whole lives, they're connected to each other over women, over success. They, they're unreasonably angry at each other when they don't call. I mean, they have a very very intense relationship. It's brotherly, in fact. Right, right. And did you, and, and so to back to Walter's goodness, I mean, one thing I thought about was, was the novel cruel with Walter's goodness? I mean, he was never repaid at all. Any moments of grace that could have come from his goodness right. were taken away uh, from well, the moment the he was young. this is the view of the, of the universe, <laughs> of the world, which I must say, you know, I'm resistant to at some level and which I find infuses his his tone and everything else. Yes, I mean, so Walter is... So let's go through is, them. Like, when he was young, Walter was, you know, tasked with helping his mother run the motel, was the only responsible person in the family, did not get repaid because his brother... Then he gets to college. Yes. He has Richard as this, like, flashier, sexier roommate who's right, getting right. all the women and then when Walter really falls for Patty she takes off with Richard for this cross country trip with, in which they don't sleep together but that's only because Richard resists and then Patty kind of you know has this revelation that she really wants to fall into Walter's arms and she does but there's always this sense of He's the good one, and Richard, to be exactly. schematic about it, and, and Richard's the sexy one. And she sort of teeters back and forth, and I think there's a good setup for this early on in the book. Walter and Patty are talking, and he says, but you seem like a genuinely nice person. And then the narrator, who's Patty, says, Patty knew in her heart that he was wrong in his impression of her. And the mistake she went on to make, the really big life mistake, was to go along with Walter's version of her in spite of knowing that it wasn't right. He seemed so certain of her goodness that eventually he wore her down. Right. That's her lifelong attraction to him is his belief in her goodness. But there's always this kind of tear in in the fabric of their relationship because she doesn't really feel that this vision of herself is true. Right. Right. And then eventually that tear leads her actually back to Richard. So you felt it was cruelty to Walter to sort of drag... I mean, I could not understand what Walter was about. Well, in the Like the idea... I mean, Walter seems to encompass kind of... Uh, the narrator's voice about freedom, as does Richard Katz. There's a lot of speeches about what freedom is and what it does to you. Um, but but what was Walter? What was the substance of Walter? I mean, he makes such a ridiculous mistake at the end of the book, working for right. this uh, environmental company that's aligned with corporations, the Cerulean Mountain Trust, that I couldn't quite understand what that was about. Right. right. In the end, he he's he's devoted to he's all, he's portrayed all along as being an environmentalist with a strong sort of um, anti-population growth, you know, loving animals. A little bit more than people, even though he's also a very good person, which I, I find interesting. I find those contradictions in his character interesting. Uh-huh. So that's part of why I like him. But anyway, in the end, he yes, he makes this kind of Faustian bargain with a coal mining company that's doing mountaintop removal of coal and, you know, dislocating people who've lived on this mountaintop for decades and, you know, all uh, in exchange for a preserve for this one bird called the Cerulean Warbler. And, you know, it's clear from the beginning this was a bad idea and a bad bargain and arguably a little bit sort of dubious that Walter would have stumbled into this who's been portrayed as this lifelong sort of environmentalist and, you know, good person. He seems um, to have hoodwinked himself, essentially. Right. The deal, just to make it uh, just to make it comprehensible, is that ostensibly you're removing the mountaintops and in exchange the, the companies are going to create this preserve. But that's what he's that the, pushing for. That he's also buying up all this property in South America and Central America and creating a, a migratory path for this bird. So that's there's this right. lar- and also even that large 
larger vision is subsumed by what he really wants to do, which is to focus on essentially to go back to the days of zero population growth and find some hip way, you know, through a bunch of music concerts to convince kids not to breathe. Right, but are right. we, we meant to understand, I mean, this is how I try to make sense of the ideas of the novel, because I personally think the kind of human relationships to me are very moving and convincing, and the ideas are a little muddled. Like, I'm, I have trouble with them. But but is the idea here, I mean, Walter's making a mistake, right? Like, all, Richard Katz and Walter rail about how we misunderstand freedom as a kind of corporate, you know, the freedom to do whatever we want. Richard Katz has a great interview with, like, a high school kid in which he talks about, oh, the freedom to all have our iPod pods and to be narcissistic and do whatever we want. And um, and I, let me just see if I can find Walter's rant about freedom because, oh, here's Walter's rant. He's talking to Katz and he says, it's all circling around the same problem of personal liberties. This is on page 361. People came to this country for either money or freedom. If you don't have money, you cling to your freedoms all the more angrily. Even if smoking kills you, even if you can't afford to feed your kids, even if your kids are getting shot down by maniacs with assault rifles, you may be poor, but the one thing nobody can take away from you is the freedom to fuck up your life whatever way you want to. That's what Bill Clinton figured out, that we can't win elections by running against personal liberties. Right. This is a recurrent yeah, so, and, and heavily hit upon theme. Right. That, and of course, the title of the book, that freedom is something that people don't know what to do with. And, um, you know, what the alternative would be in Franzen's mind, I'm not sure exactly. But is the alternative human connection? I mean, I was wondering if Walter's mistake is the obvious mistake, the same mistake they made in the neighborhood, like this very basic mistake that he you know, convince these working poor people uh, on a basic policy level to sort of give up their houses for this abstract notion and this very complicated corporate notion of some kind of preserve for birds. Like, that's the mistake. Like, the only thing that seems grounding in this novel ultimately are these connections between people, the connection between Richard and Walter and Patty, you know, the connection ultimately between Joey, their son, and his his wife, who's very complicated. Right, and it's actually like, the politics of Joey also play out in the same way where Joey co- goes to UVA as this kind of impressionable but contrarian kid who's basically rejected his parents' knee-jerk liberal politics and then ends up caught up in this total arms deal swindle in Iraq where right. he's like tromping around Paraguay buying up these rusty truck parts because he just has to ship enough weight over that the contractor can get paid and then that he'll get paid. So there is a way in which all of these moments are very, they, they Franzen is telling us about corruption in this pure way, right? Right. And well, it's not that it's not the Oedipal connection. It's not necessarily that you have to go back to your family roots because those are so poisoned in this. Not Like all the family roots are sort of wrong and poisoned and impossible to go back to. But it is these kind of built up friendships and relationships that are the things that are ultimately sustaining and lasting. I mean, that's the ultimate grace in this novel and that's what happens at the end. I mean, just to talk about Joey, he's got this very improbable girlfriend who's the working class girl of the neighbor next door. She represents like steady human connection. I mean, she's this inhumanly connected to him. And not inhumanly, but just kind of... Well, actually, I found her to be a very strange character. Well, I mean, why don't you describe who she is before we, like, what's the deal there? Because right. we didn't really say it explicitly. Right, right, right. So her name is Connie Monaghan, and she move, she moves in next door when she's a child, and her mother is this, you know, she's a out-of-wedlock girl born to this mother who's somehow getting paid, essentially, by some local politician to raise her child. And the mother's gone a lot, kind of out with men, drinking, who knows? And so Patty actually really helps raise... Connie, and then by bringing Connie into her home, sets up the scenario in which Connie and Joey, essentially Connie seduces Joey. She's a little bit older, and they start sleeping together as teenagers, and then Joey actually leaves his parents' home, his junior year of high school, and moves in next door. And this is like a central betrayal in the book, because suddenly Patty's image is this like affable bee mom who's connecting up the neighborhood and baking cookies is completely upended by the desertion of her own son. Right, and this for, Connie is this kind of force of nature. She's right. like, yes. you know, a Heathcliff character or something, except she never not so speaks, rooting really. and cruel. She's just, she's <laughs> like, it's it's a fatalistic bond right. that they have, a faded bond. Um, and yeah, it's it's a little <laughs> it's a little peculiar. And her <laughs> way of dealing with Joey once they get to college is to be, she's never demanding. She's kind of, she's the depressive in the relationship and she'll recede when he's not in touch with her. And yet she says to him, I will do anything but for you. But she's indomitable. She's, she's passive yet indomitable. Exactly. Yes. Her passivity, her very passivity makes her impossible to resist for him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, the thing about that subplot, which I thought was so interesting, which is is that you actually did not know where it was going to go. I like, agree. Acro- you know, across the arc of the book, it started out as just this kind of teenage 
screw up. And then, you know, at every moment, you know, in who she is socioeconomically, she should have gone away from the picture. There should have been just an easy way to get rid of her, right. you know. And then there's this incredibly dramatic, gross scene where he marries her by mistake, puts on her ring, and then swallows it and then has to sort of search for it in his shit, basically. And it's like a horrible... Uh, while he's on this trip, trip with, with this, this other, other girl woman. who right. he's, like, been totally lusting after, essentially, for years and finally has a chance at and then realizes that he doesn't actually want. Yeah, because sex with this other woman is sort of nothing to him. It can't... You know, maybe that's very... There okay, was actually but. a bunch of moments about sex in this book but that are very reassuring to women who are not, do not have perfect bodies, right. i.e. all of us, because it's all about, you know, these men, Richard, happens to Richard, Walter, and Joey, they have this chance to have sex with some, like, perfectly formed, nubile young woman, and it's just not interesting enough. And what right. they right. yearn right. for right. is Richard's the body they know. The connection, right. Right. the connection. body connection. It's yes. excellent, even yes. if it's all a big But, life. you know, ultimately, Connie, it, you know, sticks around, like Joey and Connie. It ends up being like a very, very true connection for him. And in fact, I think what Connie comes to represent, and there's some lines in the book about this, that Joey is trying to harden himself. He's trying to be the guy who can make the swindling arms deal and walk off with the money and, you know, screw Jenna, the complete, like, she is the quintessential Jap, this character. She's really just portrayed, I think, as right, gorgeous and one-inch deep. Vile yeah, human and, being. And fairly vile, and, yeah. And yet he can't. He can't right. steal himself to only want those things and not care about the morality underlying um, the enterprise. And he ends up going back to Connie and going back to his father, whom he has utterly rejected it throughout most of the book. And there's this sense of tremendous relief when that relationship is repaired. And Connie is part of that kind of healing right. process. And then once that's established, they actually leave the book those characters in a way that felt actually a little unresolved right. and um, sort but of I thought very me. humane it's like the, yes, that, that was true. you know the whole book the whole relationship between Walter and Joey throughout the whole book is you know which we all as parents can recognize how on earth did I give birth to this person right. who is who so is unlikely right. who is this popular you know he is everything that Walter didn't like he has a little Richard Katz well, in he's him Richard he's Katzian, really right. good looking he's really successful he's able life to kind easy of for him. life is easy he's able to go corporate, like he's able to bond with this sort of cool rich people of and the kind these- that Walter the hates, you know? And so <laughs> totally. they hate it. They, they're sort of all, you know, oil and water. And then at the end, it turns out that, in fact, the seed of Walter's goodness has survived in Joey in this way, which is very practical and good. One of my favorite ways in which Franzen really gets at Joey is that um, his use of 9-11 in this book is that Joey gets to UVA and 9-11 happens really quickly in September. And he's just pissed. It's like right. derailed right. him in some way. And I have to wonder, you know, the corrections was published right before 9 11, yeah, and there it uh-huh. could have then gotten knocked off course completely. In fact, that didn't really happen, but I had to wonder if there was some connection there. Right. That <laughs> feeling that, like, hey, this is my moment. I'm here to, you know. I have to say, some of my in. favorite um, connection moments in the book was when Joey was in college and trying but failing to reconnect with his parents. He hadn't yet gone through this whole arms deal thing. And but, he never totally reconnects with his mother, I right. think. But he's calling his mother, and I, I found that a very realistic. They were awful conversations. It was like, all the conversations between, in fact, when, 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 when Patty goes to visit their daughter at college and when Joey tries to call his mother from college. She strikes out. They all they all strike out, but in ways which I found really, really Yeah, he's poignant. really good at those sort of awkward uh, awkwardness, social awkwardness, you know, in moments that should, in fact, be full of intimacy right. and understanding. And, yeah, so so Joey, as you say, um, Joey's the, her, the mother's designated understander, and he has a great line about how, you know, he's so frustrated with her because he realizes she's quite intelligent but what is she kind of doing with her life? You know, everything she says to him, he says, added up to a kind of reproach of him as if she were speaking some sophisticated but dying aboriginal language, (laughs) which it was up to the younger generation, i.e. Joey, to either perpetuate or be responsible for the death of, which I just, I I love that line. Right, right. That was, that was extremely good. But I also think all those, the reason, I mean, one of the reasons I was moved by those misconnections, because it makes it all that more, you know, this, this sort of rare moments in his novel where there are actual connections, whether they be sexual or emotional or whatever, is sort of ever more kind of loaded and I, mean, I think the other thing is we were talking about Franzen's level of cruelty and snark toward these characters, but because he has open the door to their past and you know that you know Patty is overcoming this mother who never 
went to her basketball games and a father who, even though he's a criminal defense lawyer who cares about the oppressed, had let this rape kind of go away without doing anything on her behalf. You feel some sense that she's really struggling against her own limitations. How is she supposed to know how to do this really well and kind of rise above her own upbringing to this degree? She, you know, most people don't, in fact, take like two huge leaps and bounds away from the way they were raised. And so I felt like I had a lot of empathy for them. And also her mother behaved so terribly during that rape scene that we discussed. Yeah. Like, it, you know, you, you start out with a lot of sympathy for Patty, if only for that reason. Right. Let's right. switch topics completely and talk about Lilitha. Oh, good. <laughs> because she, um, Richard has, Richard, <laughs> Richard, Lilitha is the sort of young protege. She starts out as the young protege of Walter. She's ethnic. I guess she's Indian. She's Indian. She's Indian. Mm-hmm. And she, uh, and she's like a super zealot pro-growth person and slightly inexplicably, although maybe not kind of obsessed with Walter. Uh, we don't actually ever hear so much about her past the way we do with the other characters, although she becomes incredibly important at the end of the novel. And Richard Katz, who's they're trying to draw him in as the sort of celebrity for their cause, calls her a hot little crackpot, which I thought was a great <laughs> Well, great she has food. really swallowed Walter's Kool-Aid. She is his acolyte. And right. then she's also in love with him and de- pretty determined to break up his marriage, which in fact does happen, although not entirely because of her. And, you know, Franzen, who does a lot to describe why, like, and to set up why people love other people and what are the kind of, you know, if not pure, you know, but just kind of intense connections that people have, I don't think does so much to set up why Lalitha is in love. I don't ultimately understand. And maybe that's intentional. Maybe it's just she exists. I think you're right. We she's don't have this her figure backstory. of grace. Like, she's a kind of an angel that descends and is flawed, but well, we don't really know why she's there or what right. she's doing. Although I would also say, I mean, one thing I noticed about Lolita is she really reminded me of a character in Jennifer Egan's new book. Mm-hmm. Um, this very hard young woman who's totally cued into, clued mm-hmm. into technology and seems like she has it all figured out, but can't really have fully expressed emotions and seems kind of alarming to the adults around her. And then you were saying that yes, in super sad true love story. This is this is she's. I mean, super sad true love story is somewhat of a satire. I mean, it's futuristic, but there is also this character. She's Asian in that case. She's very facile with technology. She's sort of comically facile with uh, with porn, the language of porn, because in the Gary Steingart universe, the porny language is very um, ubiquitous. I think this is a trope, but falling apart inside, like inside kind of not quite realized, has sort of vague ethnic connection to her right. you know, old family, but isn't... And like, not is someone a, who's like an inch deep, the way no, um, right, Jenna, right. the Jab character is, but someone who is pre- presenting this, very, this shell to the world, and who uh, the adults around her are finding kind of scary because right. she seems to have it all figured. There's a way in which these women, young women are both totally together, they have it all together, and yet they really don't. I mean, why They're not is quite Lisa? human, right. Right, and I, I think there's they're invested with a lot of adult anxiety, I think, about this generation that's growing up with all this technology. Well, this, yeah, this is a like, real theme in the book, and as you right. say, it comes out in this sort of interesting sexual way at times where Richard in particular, both Richard and Patty share a kind of um, disdain bordering on revulsion for young people, which I also found disturbing at times, I have to say, when Richard's, you know, talking about their little kitty snatches and how they, you know, don't know how to, you know, fuck like an adult, basically, because they, you know, are trying all these porn, vigorously trying all these porn positions. Um, And, you know, you can... very exhausting acrobatic sex. Right, exactly. And he misses the sort of whatever the more genuine connection is with with Patty. I mean, sex is used, just as an aside here, in an interesting (laughs) way in this book, sometimes more convincingly than others. I mean, there is sort of an impression at times, which is a little annoying, that Patty's real problem, and she even says this, is she needs to have sex properly. And so it's really a problem of, you know, she has married the man she loves but doesn't desire, and the man she desires but doesn't really love is sort of out there, and she needs to... And then she actually forces Walter, her husband, to confront these feelings accidentally, because she's written this autobiography. She gives it to Richard to read, and he then gives it to Walter, and it's incredibly frank about her sexual preferences for Walter and her feeling that basically doing it with with Richard, that doing it with Walter is not so bad. That's not right. really what you want your husband to feel right, after right, many years right. of marriage. So there, there are moments when you think it's, it's, it's a little reductive about what Patty's problems right. are. You know, um, well, she does get her good 
sex with Walter right before Walter discovers that, and then they break up. Right, there's ain't, that ain't, one moment. Not sex, yeah. Right, but anyway, yeah. Back to Lolita. I, you know, I guess she also just has a plot function for Walter in that she makes Walter's investment in this otherwise fairly dubious enterprise a little more <laughs> believable because she's his constant cheerleader in right. that. Um, so and, and he they're traveling, does love her, you yes. know, or feel something for her. Now, did you? I mean, this is interesting. I actually felt like. When Lolita is alive in the book, because to have a real spoiler here, she actually is killed in a car accident, I didn't actually feel sure that Walter did love her, that Mm -hmm. there was a lot of ambivalence in his steps toward her. And part of that is just his constitutional predilection to self-restraint. He doesn't want to let himself go. Right. Um, She's his daughter's age. He reminds him of his daughter. Yeah. There are all kinds of red flags. You know, predatory, older boss, you know. Right. But I wasn't convinced they were in love. And then after her death, he remembers her with incredible anguish. And there is clear love there in the sense that this relationship for him was much deeper than Patty and Richard's connection. And I found myself a little surprised by that. I don't know if that was something. Yeah, I, I still mm-hmm. don't full. I mean, it's like in the Gary Steingart novel because they are that he this older, schlubbier, sort of Woody Allenish Gary Steingartish character I is in love with her, with this younger, hard, hyper efficient woman. And you know, they do have this connection, and it's not you don't entirely understand. It's clearly about kind of a cross generational. It's clearly about sort of a nostalgic old world connection with a kind of new world type person. It seems much more kind of theoretically about generations than it does about two human beings connecting. I wasn't always, it's true, it's only after her death. And maybe her death was so kind of, you know, she di- She basically, in the one trip that she goes without Walter, has this terrible car crash off the mountain, you know, and they've been talking all this time of these dangerous mountains, and then suddenly she does die. So you feel like maybe she was meant to be slightly unreal. I mean, she was meant to be this figure of grace who dies, and you weren't supposed to fully digest her as a human being, even the way they reach out to each other is a little bit... Huh, although I don't then know. there are these I, I scenes know. between I, I her know. and Jessica, Walter's daughter, and Jessica cannot Those stand her. Right. And they're, they're awesome. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, Lilitha is claiming to speak for youth. And of course in Walter's eyes she does, but Jessica really is in college right, and saying like right. don't you know that kids don't email they only text each other. It's really awesome. That was a good scene. You don't know the difference between a text and an email. Exactly. You're not even that young, you know, and then you and actually that was kind of good because then you realize that was the, that actually made you feel like she was maybe a more plausible maid because she was not in fact 17 years old, you know. She was not like one of the richer cats. She was a like, fuddy-duddy too. Right, 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 right. So maybe she she was a sort of old soul who I, I don't know. I, I really I didn't I couldn't make full sense of. <laughs> I think Walter that's and fair. Can we talk a little bit more about Richard? I don't feel like we've. Yes, let's do Richard and then we'll and then we'll move to the ending, which is also very interesting. Um, he was really one of my favorite characters in the book. I mean, he's wholly loathsome in that way that you know failed rock stars inevitably are. I loved the name of his band, the Traumatics, um, and then the, the Walnut Traumatics Surprise. Was perfect. Walnut Surprise, I so random <laughs> was not believable to me as an indie band title. Can I read uh, Richard Katz's uh, what he says when he when he 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 first comes <laughs> he first comes upon Walter and Lolita and they're like giving him their big starry eye talk about population growth and then I always love Richard Katz's reflections, which are Shirley Franzen. Yeah, yes. but I thought. But, but also believable, just because Richard Katz himself is this kind of cynical, you know, washed out guy. Katz, as he endured this bombardment, meaning this bombardment of ideology, this is on page 224, was feeling sad and remote. Walter and the girl seemed to have snapped under the pressure of thinking in too much detail about the fuckedness of the world. They'd been seized by a notion and talked each other into believing in it, had blown a bubble that, that had then broken free of reality and carried them away. They didn't seem to realize they were dwelling in a world with a population of two. Anyway, I just love that description of what it's like to talk to these two zealots who are kind of in their own world. And, I have you know. a favorite Katz moment too. This is where he's he he um, builds decks for rich people in the lo- in the in the village when he's kind of down and out in his luck. Um, and basically, they put up with the fact that he shows up late and leaves early and drinks. Just to explain, it's basically he's like a VH1 behind the music, right? right. He like right. he's like this obscure guy, and then he gets this fame, but the fame completely screws with him, and he does a lot of drugs and pisses. But away once his he money has the fame, other people want to be able to say, "Hey, I had a deck built." 
by Richard Katz. Right. So he's like out there building this. And then he's looking around at this building and he says, he's talking about a massive Eisenhower-era utility building that marred the 19th century architectural vistas of almost every Tribeccan loft dweller. Once upon a time, the building had offended Katz's urban aesthetic, but now it pleased him by offending the urban aesthetic of the millionaires <laughs> who'd taken over the neighborhood. It loomed like death over the excellent lives being lived down here. It had become something of a friend of his. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he also has a great, um, he has a, just, you know, for us DCers, he has a great um, moment when he comes to DC yeah, and he, he, just he, he describes sort of the lack of, he, he talks about like as if, as if sort of personal style would be in front, like some kind of intellectual affront, you know, here was everybody walking the around lack. in there, you know, a sort of uh, explicit dowdiness. And um, he, but the mean. thing about Richard is that he also in some way is redeemed in the book because he does resist Patty in the beginning. He thinks that she is good enough for Walter and so he resists sleeping with her and queering that relationship and then you know later okay he doesn't resist and he basically is drawn back in but he and Patty are not in fact meant to be together and he's able to kind of recede from her and then in a much later moment where they just bump into each other on the street and are having a glass of wine there's enough kind of easing in their relationship together that you sort of and you can imagine that these people who are circling around each other there's all this you know friction between them from youth and yet at some point it just ebbs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also so I, I also thought that because his voice is seems to me so naturally Franzen's voice that you could relax around Richard mm. when you were reading the portions about him because I wasn't so wary like what is you know how is Franzen manipulating this character it just seemed like they were a good marriage and That's so true. Franzen was kind of you know speak a uh, cat's rather was speaking in mm -hmm. this you know fairly easy voice around him um, what did you think of his breakdown his rocker breakdown did you find that was that just stereotype to you or no no I thought it was this is where he, he has a very tortured relationship with fame, which I imagine Jonathan Franzen does too. Right. And um, so, yeah, who he wouldn't. He, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? And, uh, you know, the whole notion that he's sort of, you know, he's very kind of invested in the notion that he's only appreciated by, you know, 10 people. And then suddenly he's appreciated actually with an album that he has, or a CD that he has made after the uh, his one sexual uh, encounter with three, with, with Patty. Three. Yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. She goes over that. That's right. 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 That's right. Sorry about that. Yeah. Nameless um, Lake at Nameless, Nameless Lake. Lake at, their, at the lake house. Um, and so he's done a sort of a more folky, it sounds like, alt-country kind alt -country. of uh, record based on his uh, memories of this encounter and his uh, relationship with Patty. And uh, it becomes, you know, an incongruous and unexpected hit. And then he has to deal with fame. And of course, he, you know, is one of these people who basically has contempt for his fans. Yeah. So I loved the end of this book. It really actually changed the way I felt about the whole book. I had moments along the way where I was a little impatient and unsure. And then the end just, and ends are so hard to do. I mean, usually that's where a novel unravels. And yet, in this one, the ends are tied up, I suppose you could argue too neatly, but it felt earned. Just describe what happens. So what happens is that Patty and Walter, they really do break up over Patty's revelation that she's had this affair with Richard. And Walter goes off with Lalitha, but then Lalitha dies. And so he ends up in his lake house in Minnesota for six years by himself. He's really cloistered there. And he's not speaking to Patty at all. And she creates a different life for herself in New York City. And she invests in her relationship with children and becomes a teacher. And their kids are kind of involved with both of them. It's not perfect, but things are sort of you know, herking and jerking along. And also Walter becomes a kind of almost more authentic and harsh version of what Patty was in the beginning of the book. He's not the kind of sunny neighborhood, you know, spread the pollen no, he around. He's a is... crank at, uh, against the suburban development having to do with the cats of the young couples. <laughs> not who Richard Katz. <laughs> not Richard Katz, the meow meow cats. <laughs> right. Because... Killing his beloved warblers. And so he's the kind of person who everybody in the suburban development, uh, it, this is no longer a gentrifying place. This is like plop suburban development right. type. he's a crank. And, and he's a crank and, and he's like flyers everybody to keep their cats in and this economy where everyone's and... worried about holding on to their houses. Right. And, you know, right. and this, are... the bookends are quite lovely. I mean, we start off with this neighborhood gossip voice and we end with it as well and with the suspicion of Walter. And then Patty appears one night and essentially just refuses to leave. It's cold and she just sits on the porch until Walter finally brings she her She 
looks like Connie, like Joey's girlfriend. Yes, and it's really effective. I have to file this away if I'm ever in such a plight. (laughs) And eventually he brings her inside and has to warm her up with his own body because that's what you do when someone is suffering from hypothermia. And it leads them back into their own relationship. And the novel ends with them, in fact, leaving the lake house, but it has this sense that these neighbors have turned around, that Patty's able to charm them back in, that Walter seems, again, like a husband and a homemaker. And you can imagine them And she succeeds in what she failed at at the beginning of the novel. For whatever reason, this time her efforts to the neighbors are are sort of received. The neighbors themselves are not caricatures of, you know, kind of suburban development freaks because, as Margaret said, they are, you know, it's the time of the recession, and so they are kind Kind of, you know, in trouble too, and so so they are actually moved by Patty, and it kind of works. But you're right to go back to what you were saying before about sort of, you know, what does this what does this novel say, if anything, about the possibility of kind of action in the world, mm-hmm. um, you know, or you know, making change or acting as Walter tries to in his environmental business, and it does sort of, you know, end with this feeling of, you know, only connect. I mean, it's the reconciliation, the grace is um, nothing to do with the public sphere or the world of late capitalism that he, you know, anatomizes so well. It really has to do with these two people sort of finding one another again, you know, very wounded, very, uh, you know, scarred, but able to connect with one another. And, you know, this cold bodies warming, we could say, is a little bit of a heavy-handed metaphor since we've had these sort of, you know, Connie and Joey, like, body connect. But I don't know. It kind of worked for us. It's very visual. Like, their bodies are cold to each other. Their bodies warm to each other. Something about them being older in that moment, too, is effective. But So this takes me to this whole question of, is this book a masterpiece? Because that's really what we've all been... The big debate and argument is is about whether Franzen gets unwarranted attention. If a woman wrote such a domestically oriented novel, would she ever get this kind of acclaim. And, you know, I really resisted reading the book through this prism because there's no way to wreck a novel, no better way than to be trying to constantly evaluate whether you think it's a classic. And of course, we have no idea because novels have to stand the test of time for us to really know whether they're going to make it into the the or a canon. But I did feel like this ending put a pretty good bid in. And even if the, in the end, the way that the kind of larger tapestry of the novel is about rejecting all of those politics and how corrupt and unsatisfying they are and this kind of receding into one's own relationships, that is one way of really thinking about our world and our ventures into trying to interact with it. It's not a particularly optimistic and upbeat one, but it has real power in it, I think. I mean, setting aside the question of the whether Mrs. Jonathan Franzen had written this novel, we would have received it the same way. Because I actually think the question of whether women authors are afforded the same authority, like just authority, not not necessarily are they great or the novel's beautiful, but are their domestic novels, do they have the same questions of authority? I think that's a completely legitimate question, which the literary world has to hash out. I think they, they, they're not, actually. I don't know what to say. I, I, I don't like to read it through this prism either. I think it's great. I think it's very kind of evocative of our times. I think it succeeds, you know, as I said earlier, more in its evocation of, hu- you know, human connections and a kind of voice of this moment than it does in its grand idea. I mean, its grand ideas it's a little not that fully realized or well thought out. But it's there. I mean, there's an idea about freedom and what freedom has done to us. Is that, an, is that a particularly modern idea? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would just say at this point, you know, and I have gone so back and forth on this book, but I, <laughs> I would just say that, you know, it's an incredibly involving read. I mean, at right. the level of just plot of right. sort of, because strangely, a lot of contemporary novelists are not very good plotters. And this is a plot that, you know, its twists and turns keep you hooked. It's an incredibly, you know, well-observed sociological observation of, you know, the way we live now. I'm not sure I would want to make claims for it beyond that. I know a lot of people have, and I'm not sure that does the book a great service. I think that's right. But I would definitely recommend it to anyone. Like, I would tell anyone to read it. I mean, it's, like, totally enjoyable and interesting and thoughtful and thoughtful right. and right and has lots and lots of great characters and i thought you know ultimately pretty humane although i know not everyone does but you know i think it's really good okay on that note <laughs> uh, thank you all for joining us very much uh, we have not yet decided on our next book club book so we would be happy to take recommendations on the double x gab fest facebook page so if you have any novels they can be uh, new 
books. They can be fiction and nonfiction, or they can just be an old book that you are revisiting for some reason. We would be happy to hear them. Thank you for joining us. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.